This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kempf and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, our podcast series that focuses on the little things that we can do in our classroom, the little things that can make a big difference. My name is Seb and as always I'm joined by my friend and colleague, the most cheerful Scotsman in Australia, Al. Hi everybody. This series is motivated by our belief that what really matters to the student experience is what happens in the classroom. And at our universities, we get to talk a lot about teaching, but we tend to talk about course design or teaching policy. We talk a lot about budgets, don't we? But what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about small examples of great practice that can have a big impact in our classrooms. And so what we like to do in our podcast is to talk to really interesting colleagues about the great practices, the small things that they do in their classroom, because we feel these are inspiring to us and hopefully also inspiring to our listeners. And we do want to have everyday conversations about what happens in our classrooms. So we're going to try and cut out the kind of jargon that we might associate with teaching committees in higher education so we're looking for a buzzword-free zone. And if we hear buzzwords like research-led teaching or work-integrated learning, we have a special response. No. N-O. We really want the buzzer to help encourage us to talk in everyday terms about those great examples. And this season, we're actually going further than we went in our last one. Further from the University of Queensland, further from our own faculty, and we want to explore interesting practices beyond both our own institution and our own discipline. To that end, today we're joined by James Arvanitakis, who is a professor in social and cultural analysis at the Western Sydney University, and he's also our first Pro Vice-Chancellor. I feel as if I should have worn a shirt and tie. James, welcome. Thanks for the invitation. So excited to be here and to talk about talk to passionate educators. It's really exciting, and I think education is such an amazing career. And I, I just love being an educator so much. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you both. Thank you for inviting me, James. You don't know, but Seb has been super excited. I mean, he gets excited normally about these things, but he has been super excited about this one. Do you do you want to tell the listeners why? James, you left a real mark and a real impression on me um, when I first stumbled across you in Canberra in 2013 when you gave the keynote address at the Australian National Teaching Awards because you had won the Prime Minister's Award in 2012. And of course, you know, you listen to someone who <laughs> achieved such an amazing uh, award and accomplishment, uh, but it's not about the award. What really stuck with me were a number of things. And one in particular where you were reflecting upon how, you know, your motto has been that teaching for you is really about taking students onto a journey. That taking them onto a journey really struck a chord. So I'd like you to maybe kick our conversation off by sharing some reflections on what you mean by that. A lot of people ask me about I, what's your secret to teaching? And I say there is no secret. There is no secret. The first and most important aspect of teaching is wanting to be there because if you don't want to be there then the students don't want to be there um, the second thing is I, I think of teaching as a journey in the sense of when we watch something you know when we watch a really great television series like Game of Thrones or you know or, or, or something like that we we take a journey over a, a number of you know 
know, in this case, number of years, um, with uh, a bunch of characters. And and what we experience in that are, are, are different emotions, we have different experiences. We actually feel it. We actually feel what, we, we're, what, what we're watching on, on television. And teaching, to me, is no different. We need to be able to think of teaching not as an individual group of classes, you know, that in this class from nine till 10, I'm going to be teaching this. And then, yeah, between three and four, the student's going to be learning that. We need to think about it as this long, as this, as this journey. And as we go through this journey together, we learn and we, we build. And I think that's, that's part of, uh, that's part of the journey I, I, I talk about. You want students to have real experiences and to feel emotions through practice, don't you? And some of the things you do really gets the students involved. It's easy to see why you would have fun, they would have fun with some of the the things you do in the classroom. What's important is, you know, I teach sociology, essentially sociology and cultural studies. And what's important for me is, it doesn't matter if you're teaching sociology, cultural studies, politics, uh, engineering, whatever it is you're teaching, the concept, you don't want the concepts to be something that's over there and the students are looking at it from afar. What you want is you want the concepts to be presented to the students in such a way that like it's like plasticine. You know, they get to hold those concepts. They get to play those with those concepts. They get to shape them. They get to bring in their own personalities into them. So they reflect on their own experiences, their own understandings, their own passions, and shape those concepts as, as a way. And that's really important because we should encourage our students to wrestle with these ideas and not to reify or not to believe in that these ideas can't be touched or can't, uh, uh, you know, that they shouldn't be taken as given. And so never, never should a student accept an idea as a given, as a fact, um, without challenging it. Neither should a student dismiss an idea outright because they don't like its, its leaning. Every idea should be like a piece of plasticine that should be wrestled with. And part of that wrestling, especially in the humanities, but not only in the humanities, is an emotional, is, is actually is an, an emotional response to some of the things that they're learning. And so it's a, a, for me, it's both a physical and emotional response that, they, that, that, that our students and us as, as educators need to feel. But it's been relatively abstract, right? Let's, let's add some meat to the bone. Let's look at some of that plasticine. So I know that one of your courses on globalization, you try and bring a physical and emotional experience into each of the different topics in the course. So maybe you can give us an example well, one physical example would be the idea where I, I get, say, a group of students, say 20, 20 or, or, or 30 students, and they stand in a, in, in a group. And what I do is I say, okay, what I want you to do is pick two people in this group, randomly pick them, don't let them know who, you, who you've picked, and stand equally distance between them. Right now, they could be people that are, you know, both three meters away. Now, if, if those people are away from you, one say three meters and one say two meters, and you need to move to stand equally distance between them. That makes sense. So you have a group of people that are all randomly and say, okay, pick two people and go stand equally distant between them. Now, what will happen is invariably, if I pick two people, one's three meters and one's two meters, and I go stand between them, then someone, the chances are that someone would have picked me. And so that person, as I move, that person has to move to be equally distance between me and the other person that they've picked. And if that if they move, then there's a chance that somebody else has picked that person and so that everybody moves. Now, 
The reason we physically do this is because it's a great example of globalization to show how interconnected we are, that as soon as one piece moves, another piece moves. And so, you know, decision made in the United States about trade policy impacts Australia. The, Australia, the decision that the Australian government makes about subsidies impacts Indonesia. In, uh, the decision that Indonesia makes about uh, the way it's dealing with, um, you know, religious laws has an impact on its relationship with Malaysia. You know, all these things are interrelated, so inter, in, interconnected. So once one thing moves, um, something else moves. And so in a way, that's a physical manifestation of the way we understand globalisation. So that's pretty amazing. I mean, the lesson itself in terms of the interconnectedness is amazing, but it sounds like just good fun, both for for you, the kind of coordinator who know exactly what the student's going to experience, but the students are all, how, how, how long do you make them move? You just let them move for as long as they need to move. And you can get into a situation where three people have picked each other without realizing and soon as one moves a little bit the other person moves so then that person has to move and the other person moves <laughs> and this will continue can continue for quite a while now the really interesting thing about that is eventually you get some sort of um you get some sort of like balance where everybody stops moving now the moment that that happens you can actually then use, I mean, if it goes on for too long, you can stop people from moving. But usually at some point, people stop moving. And the moment that happens, you share the lesson. But then what you do next is you grab two people, right? And then you move them and then say, okay, now everybody move again. And the reason you do that is because then you say, anytime you do hit some sort of balance, it's only a temporary thing. Right, it's only ever temporary. Balance is only ever temporary in global processes, and we see that. You know, like ten years ago, we were describing America as the as the real hyperpower, the final hyperpower. You know, ten years later, we see the rise and influence of China. You know, and now and then everybody now sees that as being the next phase, and it will be the next phase, but it's not going to be a permanent phase, right? Because things are changing all the time. Mm. And so um, so the idea is that any sort of balance uh, exists, exists temporarily. And so the students need to recognize the fact that eventually something will move and a whole bunch of other things will happen. That was, I think, a wonderful f example of a physical experience, right? There's also, you do some rhythmic clapping with them. You also might have some emotional experiences you build in. Maybe throw in a second example and then we can zoom out from that a little bit. An emotional example, one that has a, a, it's also a physical example, but another one that I think is quite powerful is when we talk, when I do classes on sort of displacement or again, it's part of globalization and we talk about people moving around the world. And then I get the students to, draw a suitcase and say, imagine that you are forced to flee your home, right? And this is the only thing you can take, this one suitcase. Think about what items you would use to fill in the suitcase. You know, what would you, what would you take? What would you put in there? You know, and someone, uh, you know, what are the precious items that you have? But what are the practical items you have? How heavy could that suitcase actually be? And then again, get them to, as a group, decide, you know, do we take these jackets to keep us warm and dry? Do I take, you know, as someone said, you know, uh, my Bible, it's such an important connection to my family and my heritage. You know, what is it that we pack? And that is a, that is a moment of, of, of actually understanding 
the emotional process that, say, a refugee or a displaced person has to go through. But it's also a physical manifestation because, you know, if you can imagine, I, I bring in sheets of paper where students will draw the, the newspaper or the, the size of the uh, the size of the, the suitcase. So that's also a really powerful moment for many students because it is an understanding about how we have to, you know, so how people in, in these situations make decisions uh, based on a combination of being practical but then also emotion. And talking through that is a, is a really hard process. We do get quite a lot of the time practices which are bodily and sometimes I think we both teach in areas which have emotion disaster you know, displacement too. What I can see the commonality is that that moment where everyone's laughing and moving and then you've got them stopped, you have a, a window of opportunity to smash home the central kind of soundbite lesson. And then in the, the poignancy one, you probably have a moment where everyone's really kind of just that kind of gap. Do you go in for a, a kind of a killer line or is it a killer statement? Or how do you capitalise on that moment where you open up the space to hit the message home? Yeah, look, I, I think that's a really fantastic um, observation because I think we're more likely to learn when we're emotionally and physically invested, not just mentally invested. Those three, those three parts of our learning process have to be aligned. And I think uh, when you're having that experience, you're more likely to be open to something that you otherwise wouldn't be open to. It do, it do, it, I think it relies less on me being preachy and saying, you know, now we must all support refugees. You know, that's that's not where I want to get to because that's not, I mean, that's my political position, but what I want people is less to sort of give them that line, but then, but more to say, you know, we need as, a, as humanity to reflect on the experiences of others and have empathy. You may, this is not a, a statement or an argument against strong borders or your political position. It's an argument around empathy and understanding what people are experiencing. And that, they're two different things. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be preachy. I don't want to be driving home my own political messages. What I want to do is I want students to be challenged. And a part of that is, you know, and there's two things associated with that. The first thing is building trust in the, in the classroom. So I can broach topics and, uh, and get them to say things and, and raise issues that maybe they otherwise wouldn't, and that's based on trust and respect. And the second thing is to ensure that we have not only safe spaces so people can raise things and feel safe when they raise them, but brave spaces so nothing is off the table, that people can say things um, that they may feel... Uh, you know, they can raise things and sometimes they can raise things in clumsy ways. And so those things for me are really, really important. But I think it's only through that moment of self-discovery where people hold on mm. to, uh, to to those lessons learned and take it, take it with them. I can totally see how you can generate a safe space in your classroom. I think the generation of a brave space is, I, I would suspect is a slightly more challenging how do you what do you do in order to to give them that feeling that they can be brave how can you allow yourself to be brave i think look i think the first part is that is that moment of trust to build those those trust and part of that trust is not to come across as either is not to just assume you're the smartest guy in the room, right? And that's one of my one of my underlying philosophies. So when I'm in that room, there are people, you know, it could be a tutorial of 25, 30, or it could be a lecture of 300. 
you just never assume that you know everything there is to know about the topic. You know, I I can talk about gender and I can talk about gender theory and I can present a whole bunch of things, but I have never I've haven't I haven't worked a hospitality job where uh, you know where someone may have you know inappropriately touched me. Um, I can talk about displacement, but I haven't been a refugee. I can talk about a whole bunch of things that I've never may, may never experienced it in a way that other people have. So you'll never assume you're the, the smartest guy in the room. So the first thing you do is you give permission for for well thought out opinions, but then you also give permission or you create an environment where people can make mistakes. What I often find is that. Students want to ask things, right? And they want to ask things and sometimes they're too scared to ask them because they either don't have a grasp of the language or they're too scared to say it in a clumsy way. And so if you can set an environment where you can make the students feel that they can ask those questions, as long as they're respectful, they can be a little clumsy, they can get a, a bit wrong, but rather than judging them, you will unpack it based on the essence of the question, not, not the way that the question is exactly given, then I think you can uh, get people to, to trust each other, to begin to trust each other and to continue to share um, those ideas. So it, it's something that doesn't happen uh, naturally, it's something you have to work out. One of the things I'm feeling, I don't know if you feel it, Seb, but you, know, that you seem to be somebody that puts their self as a teacher on the same level as the students. So we don't want distance with theory. We don't want distance in terms of personality. We don't want the hierarchy of teacher, student. We want to have, if you like, everyday interactions, but around themes that go to lessons. Is that fair? That's exactly fair. And, you know, there's two important parts of that. One is, as an educator, I'm always learning. And there's experiences that, like I said, my students have that I can learn from. I used to have, I used to have a class at on, on Tuesdays at, and Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Sorry, at 8 a.m. And I used to arrive at the university at 6.30 because I had two students who used to come straight from a night shift and I would let them sleep in my office for an hour and a half before, before the, the class started. If we're talking about class politics, these are two students that are experiencing class politics a lot more than what I've, I'm experiencing class politics, right? And so I'm learning from them and the battle that they face. That's, that's the first thing. But the second thing is that all the concepts that we have, you know, like, for example, I really believe, I, you know, being a, I really believe like there's a lot to learn from analysing class, for example, in class politics. Uh, I think that we need to understand the, the, the sort of the, the hierarchies and structures in our society. But talking about, say, something like Marxism or, or class politics in theory is not going to explain, not going to allow um, an understanding in the contemporary world. What's more powerful is to say to the students, okay, jump on the My School's website and find out how much uh, money per student, say, King's College gets and compare that to North Parramatta High and, and tell me which politicians have been to which high schools. And then tell me, you know, and, and begin to unpack it that way. So their experiences count as a learning process, as well as um, their experiences helping teach me. And I think that kind of breaking down the hierarchies is, is really important. And I, you know, and, and that's part of the reason I, I, I love being an educator because I'm, ed, I'm ed learning myself. One of the f elements I find when I'm thinking of the next lecture, the next class, the next contact with students is, okay, I know 
what the content is I want to cover, the major puzzles. And then the question for me comes, how do I translate this into a meaningful educational learning activity? And you've got these wonderful examples that seems to be for every of your topics. I was wondering, do you have these ideas first or do you start with the theories? What's the process for you in preparing and designing those kinds of exercises? I kind of work backwards because what I do is I think about what I want what I want my student to be when they finish the semester. And then I go, okay, so this is what, what I want them to know and when they walk away. What are the five things that I'd really love them to be able to do, right? This is supposedly what we call uh, learning outcomes, right? Oh, oh finally get so, to use the buzzer. And, and the, the thing about learning outcomes is they're generally written by academics for academics. So if you read them, they are jargon-infused, vague, I hate them, right? So what I do is I actually, they're the learning outcomes. What I'm interested in is what I want my students to do. So for example, first year sociology, introduction to sociology, what do I want my students to do? Well, I, I want them to, to, to read the newspaper and, and, and know what's going on. I want them, that's one. Two, I want them to call bullshit, to be able to, to read something and say, that's not jargon, right? Bullshit is not jargon. <laughs> to call bullshit, <laughs> no, no. right? No, no, um, no. I want them. I, you know, I, I want them to be able to be confident uh, to learn about the culture of of the university, to be confident negotiating the different demands that a university offers them. I want them to unpack the power, the way that power works in our society. So they're the four things, say, at the beginning, what I want them to walk away with. How do I do that? Well, I do that by teaching them, by actually exposing them to, say, these six ideas, you know, class, gender, globalization, race and racism, and technology. Now what I do is, okay, how do I turn that into something that, that I can enjoy teaching, they can enjoy learning, and they can apply to their everyday lives. That's the process I tend to tend to follow. And it's in and, and what I what I always encourage, you know, colleagues to do is it doesn't have to be perfect. Try something, see how it works. Does it work? If it works, try it again, right? Sit down with the students after class and ask them, hey, how was that? What did that work? What didn't work? Hey, how should I do this? I want to teach this next next week. I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Is that is that too much? You know, part of it is just knowing where I want where I want to end up. How I get there doesn't really matter. Mm. And and getting the students to help guide that pathway, you know, to help guide is really, really important. Mm. You know, and this is classic about trying to place a student, trying to place the learning experience right in the middle of what, what you're trying to do. And I love that point about risk taking, try something and then build it incrementally. You know, move it up or down when you once you get a sense of what works. Yeah, mm. yeah, totally. And I mean, this is so rich. I think we could just continue talking, but I think uh, yeah. this is already so many wonderful things. And I think that we see them as an encouragement for um, our listeners to come in, you know, articulate a couple of ideas, respond, get in touch with you, James, get in touch with us. And so while saying thank you for taking the time to talk to us and delivering like these really wonderful insights and gems here to those of us who are tuning in just to say you can find us on Instagram on Facebook and on Twitter and you can obviously get hold of our podcast on all sorts of different channels so um, thank you for tuning in and we, we do love to hear about those examples where you use the practices and even the philosophies and one of the great things I'll take away from today is to remember to have humility when you create lessons and when you teach them. Thanks for uh, joining us in Higher Ed Heroes. 
and we look forward to having your company again. 